You know, it's fun to teach anytime, but uh, Resurrection Sunday special. Let me pray for just a second before we look at the scriptures. Uh, Father, thinking of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians when he was talking about your son in the gospel, he rhetorically asked, who is adequate for these things? Lord, the glorious truths we've been singing about, thinking about this morning, they are above us. Lord, it's only your spirit that allows us to see truth as it is to see your son as he is. We ask that you'd make us adequate by your doing, by yourself, by your spirit this morning, Lord. Help us to see Jesus more fully and, Father, might the truth of the resurrection be filled up and overflow in each one of us this morning and tomorrow and on and on, Lord, till the glorious eternal day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a middle-aged physician and soldier and sort of part-time poet uh, in World War I. You guys will probably know the poem that I'm referring to in just a second if you don't already, but he had just buried one of his young friends. This was in the trenches, World War I. The Germans had for the first time used massive doses of poisonous gas and killed 6,000 men in a matter of 10 minutes. <clears throat> just buried his young friend. Tens of thousands of soldiers had just recently died. And as he's looking out over the multitude of graves, there are flowers blowing gently in the wind. And as he's thinking about what had occurred and his friend and the loss and the flowers, this is what Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, physician, soldier, and poet from Canada wrote. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky the lark, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. This became the most famous poem of the era of World War I. Uh, McCrae did not live past World War I. He died ten months before the war ended. And yet this poem lived on after him, and it remained this challenge. Before the end of World War I, it was the real challenge. It was the war at hand to take the torch, which was the fight, to pursue liberty. And this charge is a great charge on Resurrection Sunday as well, this thought that others have given the last full measure of devotion... And sort of from the grave, it's as if a torch comes out of the ground and they say, you need to take hold of this and you need to carry on the fight that we've given our all for. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave his last full measure, died on the cross for our sins. On Easter Sunday especially, we remember he gloriously rose. And now it's as if a hand comes down from heaven with that same torch of life and liberty and says, take hold of this torch, carry on the fight, keep the faith, carry on what I've done. 
Now, we are not atoning for sins anymore. That was gloriously done once for all when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus' work is done, guys, but the resurrection, that's just the beginning of our work and our call, I hope, as you'll see this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to hop around a little bit in there. I'm not going to work through the whole passage by any means, but to give a frame of reference for this, when Paul wrote the Corinthians in this first letter, 16 chapters long, he was addressing a number of issues they had. So you know if you read through, there were things like, what's real wisdom versus sort of the Greek worldview of real wisdom? Or about immorality and the Christian call to purity? Or hanging out in pagan temples, was that okay or not? Or, or what about being married? What about being single? What do we do with these thoughts? Spiritual gifts? What does the meeting of the church look like? He talked about a number of important issues, but when he got to chapter 15, he says, now I'm going to tell you the thing that matters above everything else I've said. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says, the first thing of importance, it's the first of the first. It's the primary of the primary. In the Greek, it's the protos, protos. Anything else aside, the most important thing I've got to tell you is Christ died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the most important thing, Paul says, I've got to tell you. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose from the dead. Christ died means... Your sins and mine were born by someone else on the cross. We call this substitutionary atonement. And you know, if you read the Old Testament and the sacrifices, the person came and they put their hand on that animal and that animal took their place and its throat was cut and its lifeblood was poured out. And that animal blood was, in a substitutionary way, covering over their sins. Christ died for your sins, for our sins, means Christ took our penalty in his body on the cross, Paul says. First importance, Christ was buried. This means Jesus was really dead. He wasn't play acting. He wasn't holding his breath. It wasn't someone other than Jesus. There's all kinds, you know, if you listen or read at all, all kinds of other theories about somehow Jesus wasn't Jesus that died. No, Paul says he died. He really, really died. And they did with Jesus what you do with a body. They buried him in the ground. He was really dead. And Christ rose from the dead. He really, really rose. Really dead. Really alive. That last passage Matt read. Do you have some fish? I'll eat a bite. Put your, put your hand in my wounds, you know. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. They don't know what to make of him, do they? And they'd seen Lazarus rise from the dead, by the way. They'd seen the dead brought back to life, but they hadn't seen it like it was true with Jesus. Really dead, really rose. Now, Paul brings this up to the Corinthians. This is a minor digression, but just to do some kind of honesty to the text we're in. The Corinthians had a problem with the idea of resurrection. Now, think of this. Paul had preached the gospel to this group of people, and they bought it. They believed. They believed Christ died for their sins. They believed he was buried. They believed he rose from the dead. But now they're having trouble with it. And imagine this for just a second. If you have Jewish heritage, let's say, and you're part of the church in Corinth back in Paul's day, 
If you had happened to come from the school of thought represented by the Sadducees in Israel, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The body's it, you're done, that's it. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. He confronts the Sadducees. But if you were a Greek, if you were from the Greek-Roman side of life, you had another issue with resurrection. Because for the Greek world, their philosophy said, look, what's really important, what really matters are the highest things. Those are the spiritual things. The highest things are spirit. And the body, it's secondary. It's sort of this thing that you're tied to. But liberty in real life, it would be to be without the body. So even though they initially believed, those old ways of thinking are coming back to them. No, the dead don't rise. So that, what do we do with that? If we're Christians, how do we get around this? And that's what Paul's confronting here in chapter 15. They're having trouble with it. So Paul says to the Corinthians, if the dead don't rise in general, you've got a real, real problem on your hands. So in that chapter, verse 16, he says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, Paul says, you have no forgiveness of sins. So that if there is the God that we've proclaimed to you in Christ's name, you're still at odds with him. He's holy, you're not. He's set apart, you can't reach him apart from somebody's help that you can't muster up yourself. If Jesus didn't rise, you're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness, period. Verse 18, he says, Then those also have fallen asleep in Christ. Guys, they perished. Between the time Paul proclaimed Christ and the time he wrote this letter, some of the Christians in Corinth, they'd already died. They'd already died. And Paul says, guys, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, your family and friends, they haven't raised. They're not in heaven. Their corpses are simply rotting in the ground if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Your family and friends that you're holding out this hope for, nope, they're toast. They're history, just like you'll be too. And last in 19, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Right? Because Christians, they're trying to live life a little different. They're sort of getting out of the the rest of the pagan Greek Roman way of life, right? But if they're doing that and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, guys, you're losers. You are losers with a capital L. You've believed a fairy tale. You've laid down good stuff in life that you could have been enjoying otherwise. You are losers with a capital L. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you believed a fairy tale, you're like kitties. And someone's taking your gumdrop away. There's no resurrection. That's Paul's point. If you don't believe he rose from the dead, you have absolutely nothing. Paul says you're fools among fools if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, Paul doesn't stop there, of course. And on Easter Sunday, neither will we. So he continues at verse 20, not to worry. Paul says, your philosophy is deficient and your view of life, it will not get you there. It's not true, whether it's Sadducean and Jewish or whether it's Greek, that's not true. So he says at verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. If you had a Jewish background, you knew every year, what did the Jews do when the crops were ready? The priests went up to the field. 
he took a scythe or a knife and he cut out one stalk of grain. And he took that grain into God's presence in the temple and he offered it to God. It was the first fruit from the field. And it was a reminder to God and to the nation that the whole field was out there waiting to be reaped. But this one special stalk was taken in before all the others and it was put before God in his very presence. And Paul says Jesus is the first fruits. He's the special one already in God's presence. And by the way, that means as you as the rest of the field, man, that means you're going in too because he's just the first. For since by man death came, by a man also the resurrection of the dead, as in Adam all die, so also now in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Jesus is in heaven bodily. He's the only one from this earth that is. bodily in heaven after that those who are Christ it is coming depending on your view of eschatology whether you believe in the rapture of the church first or the second coming or however you put those things together at the parousia at the appearing of Jesus Christ to the earth Paul says you get this resurrection Christ rose first the rest that is coming then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he's abolished all rule, all authority, and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And going down to verse 55, he concludes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus rose, Paul says, and at Christ's coming, you will too. Jesus is the first fruits. We're going to follow after. And this is all part of God's plan in this long, long war between heaven and hell when Jesus is going to eventually reclaim all of the world and all of the universe and bring it all back under Jesus and God's benevolent benevolent reign and will. Now... The Corinthians had philosophic, theological problems with the resurrection. So that's what brought this whole argument up. That's why Paul's addressing it. Guys, you know, I don't think most of us, maybe none of us here, have a problem philosophically or theologically with a resurrection. Most of us here on Easter Sunday are Christians. We say we believe in the resurrection. Now, without calling any of us liars, I sort of wonder if we actually do, really, believe in the resurrection because according to Paul belief in the resurrection has some repercussions it has some implications and when I look at my own life and when I look at the life of the church I'm wondering if we really believe in the resurrection so for instance Paul says when he winds down this long chapter 58 verses he said he's told the truth okay Christ died for your sins that's atonement sins are forgiven he's died in your place in the grave And then he rises from the dead. You're justified. It's proof positive. It's all done. You're good to go. His conclusion is this, verse 58, Therefore, in light of those truths, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul says the conclusion of faith in Christ's resurrection is, is this lifestyle that's characterized 
by an unshakable, rock-solid foundation, belief, trust, affirmation in the verity, the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Immovable. And out of that unshakable foundation in the truth of the resurrection, Paul says, guys, your life should be characterized by always abounding in the work of the Lord. When I think of this, that if you will, sort of the proof of the pudding of my faith and my trust in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that I always abound in the work of the Lord, this is convicting. And I rethink, Lord, what do I really believe and what am I really acting on? And do my actions, do my day-to-day conversations, do the places I go, the people I interact with, do they reflect an abounding faith, an abounding abundant work in your name? Do I live like I believe, really believe, the resurrection is true? Because guys, this is the implication. If our lives remain unaffected, and we say we believe in Jesus' resurrection, there's something drastically amiss. Drastically missing. If we say we believe, but our life has not been radically changed. So Paul tells the Corinthian church in his day, he tells us the same thing today, we should be absolutely immovable, rock solid in our confidence in the resurrection, and that should produce this over-the-top kind of living informed by that faith in Jesus' resurrection. Now, At the end of John's gospel, in John 19, John's the only one that records this. It's not in the synoptics. Jesus' last words on the cross in John's gospel are, it is finished. That is the work of redemption, sin atoned for. The resurrection hadn't happened yet, but it was going to. Jesus says, it is finished. It's over. This atoning sacrifice is done. It is finished. So the impossible mission impossible for anyone but the Lord himself. The impossible mission of redemption, Jesus says, at his death on the cross, it's finished. It's over. I've done everything the Father asked me to. It's finished. But like a runner passing the baton in a relay race, the price of redemption has been paid, but the work God meant to occur on this earth has just begun. Redemption is something none of us could do. We can't atone for our sins. We can't atone for anyone else's sins either. That work, unique to Jesus, once for all, that's it. But once Jesus is in heaven, his work is over and ours has just begun. And just like McRae's poem about the dead, those who had already gone ahead, paid for liberty with their life, visually, as it were, holding up the torch of freedom, Jesus is, as it were, passing the torch to you and I and say there's work to be done. The race is not over and he has done his part and he passes the baton to us to do our part as well. I've had to ask myself, it's searching, it's humbling, frankly. Um, Does my life reflect the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Am I playing at this Is it words? Is it a nice thing I entertain in my home? Or does this change, radically change the way I live? Is my life, just reflect on this, is your life, 
Is the life of this church, does it look like this overflowing offering to Jesus himself? So just walk through a few implications with me. If we're immovable because of the truth of the resurrection and our aim is to always abound in the work of the Lord, is that reflected in the way we live? Now, if you think, what is the work of the Lord and what does that look like? You know, sometimes we might think of missionaries going off to another continent. And that's the work of the Lord for sure. But you know, in God's economy, there's no such thing as sacred things and common things. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, every area of our life. So even in the realm of work, Jesus says, when you work, you do your work with all your heart for me. So if we say, what does always abounding in the work of the Lord look like? Guys, it means wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, we're doing it for Christ with a full heart out of faith. So just review, you know, we always get down to some brass tacks like this. Uh, Am I abounding in love for God enough to get up daily and meet with him in his word? This is my drumbeat. Are you meeting with the Lord in the scriptures? His word is truth. It's what liberates us. It's what informs us about things like the resurrection. Are we abounding simply in a personal relationship with God himself? Do we have a personal relationship with God? We don't work for salvation. We accept the gift God has given us in his son. And in that abounding love, that starts with our relationship with God himself. And also, by the way, if you don't abound in love for Christ and in his work in your home, we're hypocrites. And that faith is not real. If your family doesn't recognize you for your faith, no one else will or should if your spouse, if you're married, does your spouse think you abound in the works of the Lord? Do they feel loved and supported by you? That's the work of the Lord. If you're a parent, do your children know the serious call and the liberating call of Christ because you're giving it to them? Is your aim as a parent to introduce them to Christ, to know God, to love him, to serve him, to live with him forever? If it's not, You're not abounding in the works of Christ towards your children. If you're a child still living in your parents' home, are you abounding in the works of God by simply obeying and honoring your parents? If you have siblings, do your siblings know you believe in the resurrection because of the way you treat them? Guys, this is brass tacks. If this isn't true at home, it's not true. Don't bother you know, putting on a face for the church, for us on Sunday morning or for others. Why bother? Go do something else more fun. Being religious is no fun. This is brass tacks. Does does our abounding work in Christ affect the way we give? And I don't mean just financially. For some of us, giving financially is a challenge. It's a chore. We we don't have much. We feel like, Lord, I can't give much. Giving is financial for sure. It's also our time and our energy. When you look at your calendar, does your calendar, does your activity as well as your checkbook, does it reflect always abounding in the work of the Lord? Is our life centered in honoring Christ wherever we're at? Have we made it a priority to encourage others? Are we sharing the gospel with as many people as we can? Guys, we, the church in the West... these are desperate times guys spiritually not just economic they're desperate times spiritually 
Are we abounding in the work of the Lord and sharing Christ with others while there's time to? You know, if you're 15 or 20 years now, you think life seems like a long time. I'm almost 55. It's not. It's short. It's really fast. We don't want to waste our time. Abounding in the work of the Lord, we're sharing our hope in Christ with others, the truth of the resurrection with as many people as we can. Now, this thought, abounding, it's a great word. You know, I'm thinking abounding, that's a lot. The thought is that it's more than a certain measure. So abounding means I've got a a one-gallon, let's say, pitcher. And abounding means I'm pouring out two gallons. Or abounding means I thought I was going to give $10, but you know what? I feel constrained to give 20. Or abounding means, Lord, I thought I wanted to do this much for you, but once I got in the game, I just felt like, man, it's not enough. I got to do more. That's abounding. You try and measure out God's grace and how much we're giving back to him. Paul says it's too little. Whatever the measure is, it's too little. Abounding means we're aiming for this and we just say, man, we got to do more than we thought we would or could. That's abounding. That's abounding in every area of life. Is our life characterized by this kind of overflowing generosity and work in Christ's name? And is our church, are we individually and are we collectively? On Resurrection Sunday, I just want to say this. Guys, if our life does not have this kind of abounding, superabundant, overflowing work in the lives of the people around us, we have not laid hold of the truth of the resurrection the way Paul says we're supposed to. Therefore, because Christ died, because he was buried, because he rose, and you will too, Paul says, get in the game, take the torch, accept the baton, and get on with the work. I'm just finishing reading through the New Testament. I just came through Revelation. You know, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven different churches. Listen to what he wrote to the church at Sardis. He says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Seven spirits, that means he's omniscient. God's spirit, omniscient, seven, perfect number. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. And the seven stars, those are the churches. Jesus, the one who knows everything, sees it all as it is, has absolute control of the church, their church and ours, says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive. You have a reputation that you're spiritually where it's at. Sardis, it's happening at Sardis. You guys are cool and groovy as far as other people are concerned. You've got great worship. You're packing them in. Sardis, man, Sardis is where it's at. Jesus says, that's your reputation. He says, the truth is you're dead. He doesn't mean spiritually dead. He means asleep. You are asleep at the wheel, Jesus says. You got a name and a reputation is not true. I can tell you, I know. It's not true. So he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. Why? Because I haven't found your deeds, your work. I haven't found your work completed in the sight of my God. Remember what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. Change what you're doing. Change the way you're thinking. Get back in the game and finish the work you were given. So Jesus comes to the earth. He lays it all out on the line. He dies. He's buried. He goes back to them and he's passing us the torch. And he says, guys, wake up. 
Guys, wake up. Guys, wake up. Listen to the way Keith Green said this. If you haven't heard this song, you can go online. The lyrics are there at least. It's a great song. Keith Green, about 30 years ago, wild-eyed, wild-haired guy that died young in a plane crash, you know, but his music's still around. Keith Green said this in part in his song, Asleep in the Light. He said, the world is sleeping in the dark, that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? I think that's us. Jesus rose from the grave, and you, you can't even get out of bed. Jesus went to the trouble to rise from the dead. We could at least get out of bed and engage in his things. Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. On Resurrection Sunday, mull this over in our minds. Lord, are we rock solid on the truth of the resurrection? And if we are, is that informing the rest of our life? Are we always overflowing, abounding in the work of the Lord, whatever area of life we're thinking about or talking about? When McRae's poem got out, by the way, McRae wrote his poem, crumpled it up, threw it away. And a friend saw it, picked it up, and sent it to England to a magazine. They didn't print it, but another one picked it up, punch, and did. And it was so well-received, and as you know, it's so poignant. It elicited a number of response poems. One of them was called America's Answer. As you might remember, America got in a little late to World War I, but this was America's Answer by R.W. Lillard. Lillard wrote, Rest you in peace, ye Flanders dead. The fight that you so bravely led, we've taken up. And we will keep true faith with you who lie asleep with each a cross to mark his bed and poppies blowing overhead when once his own life blood ran red. So let your rest be sweet and deep in Flanders' fields. Fear not that you have died for naught. The torch you threw to us we caught. Ten million hands will hold it high. And freedom's light shall never die. We've learned the lesson that you taught in Flanders' fields. You know, all analogies fail, of course. But Jesus is. He's the victor. His, his race is over. His fight is won. But just like these poems, it's this thought that, guys, I've done my part, but God has worked for us on the earth. And Jesus, that conqueror from heaven, has put his hand down with that torch and said, this is your torch, this is your race, this is your work. In your time, I have work for you to do. And he basically says, don't tell me what you're doing. Don't rest on your laurels. Wake up and get in the game. We can do nothing more to honor Christ and his resurrection, what he did for us, than getting in the game, guys, than being about Christ's things with a full heart, confident, immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord. This Resurrection Sunday, ask yourself the question, am I abounding in the work of the Lord? Does my life reflect the reality of Jesus' resurrection? We're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. This is a great time to remember what Jesus did for us. As you get ready, just take a moment, just between you and the Lord, 
to just mull these things over. Lord, what do you want me about? What areas have I fallen down in that you're calling me back to faithfulness? Where have I dropped the torch? What do you want me about? What does that look like? Confess your failures to the Lord. Get your heart right with him. When it is, come on forward, get the bread, get the juice, take it back to your chair, eat the bread whenever you're ready. If you would, hold the cup and we'll drink that together at the end. Father, preserve your saints, your holy ones. Preserve us today from proclaiming things with our mouth that we don't believe in our heart. God, might our deeds match the faith we claim. Lord, might what we believe and what we say and what we do all be the same. Father, thank you for the offering of your Son in our place that Jesus truly did die for our sins. He really lay dead in a tomb in our place and he really did rise from the dead for our justification, seated now at your right hand. Lord, Paul says that we who live should no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us, who loved us and died for us. Lord God, would you help us make the rest of our days as many breaths as you give us on this earth, Lord, make them a thank you to you. Lord, redemption's work was all Christ's. Thank you for the privilege of interacting with the things you're doing in the earth today. Lord, help help each of us take that baton, grab hold of that torch, and be in our world, in our time, in our day, that one that's abounding in the works of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.